Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. What you are about to hear is more than a story of an abused kid in Africa who ran away from home, then lived on the streets, slept in the sewer in a nearby city. A kid who literally never had anything provided for him, only taken, until he got one big break at age 15. And at that point, he had never had shoes. He only ate a few times a day. He slept for an hour a day. He'd never slept in a bed or ridden in a car, but with one man's help, he went to school, attended universities, and immigrated to America, where today he fosters and adopts children. But what I really want you to hear is this is a story relevant to all of us. That's why I had him on this self-helpful show, because this boy endured such tremendous hardship and difficulty that his escape provides a uniquely stark depiction of the emotional overcoming we all must do. If we want to be at peace with the world and those around us, my guest is Peter Mutabazi. He was that kid today at 48. He's an entrepreneur and international advocate for children, the founder of now I am known a corporation that supplies resources that encourages and affirms children. Peter is a single father of an adopted white son and foster dad to many that he's looking to adopt. Peter has worked for World Vision and the International Committee of the Red Cross. He's appeared on BBC and the Today Show. He currently lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he fosters children and flips homes. He has over 200,000 followers on Instagram at Foster Dad Flipper. Peter tells his story and the lessons he learned and that's what I had him on the show for in his new book, Now I Am Known. And while I shamelessly promote every guest's book. This one is just dear to me. I mean, he walks through a life of, again, such difficulty, it'll shock you, but he ends each chapter with the lessons learned and the grace he's found that will equip and convict you to alter your circumstances or perspectives and likely both. Right now, Peter is striving to be a full-time single dad to a bunch of kids. If you have an organization, I'd really ask you to go check him out. He's a powerful speaker to bring in. You can visit now, I am known foundation.org. Consider booking him to speak and helping in his efforts. Right now, the growing family needs a new van and a babysitter, and they raise money to provide support for new foster families and kids aging out of foster care. So again, check him out at now, I am known foundation.org. Friends, if you find value from the Self-Helpful Podcast, it'd be great if you'd subscribe, leave a review. Thanks for those of you who've done that recently. Uh, best of all, just talk about what you heard here with someone else. Let it dig in further to your psyche and help change you as it's helped change me. You can always find me on social media or my website, kevinmiller.co. Next up, walk with me as I talk to Peter Mutabazi about the emotional overcoming we must all do to find hope and peace. Uh, Peter, as we talked about before the show, reading your book, when I first saw it, I thought, I want to have this guy on the show. 
because of what you're about and because of what you've been through, I want to have you on the show. That was before I really dug into your book and reading the book. Again, the best word that I could come up with is what I told you a minute ago. It was, it was sobering. It was really incredibly sobering to hear your story. I know I'm not the first person to feel that way or to, I mean, that's why people want you to come speak is because it's such a, a paradigm shift, but it almost is overwhelming. Do you get that response somewhere? It's almost overwhelming to accept what you've been through and that you're okay. And it's really hard to look at my life and look at what seems, what seems trivial. And it's not people's trauma is not trivial, but it can seem that way. Hard to accept some of the, some of the things in response to something that the gravity of what you've experienced. Do you find people, do you find people struggle with that? You know, I think so. I think people who know me, they see me smiling, they me, you know, they see me as a as a dad, and that's the picture they get to see. And once they peel off the layers and they're like, no, can you possibly come from this and be able to be who you are right now? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's amazing what trauma can do, but it's amazing what we can overcome as well. I think holding those sides, how can you come from that deep of abuse and still be a, a good dad? see the best in people, I think is what people struggle with when, when they really get to read more about my life. I think that, Peter, that's one of the things that struck out to me is seeing the best in people because you came from some of the worst in people. You've experienced the worst, not only in your own childhood, but even in the genocide that happened over there. You've seen that and coming from such hardship, it seems like it'd be probable even for you to be a little jaded and critical of us in America with our, you know, we joke about it, but first world problems. It really is like, Oh, so sad. You don't have the latest phone. Really? Uh, that's so, so, so sorry for you. It it would make sense that you could have that feeling instead of being just what you said, seeing the best in people. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, as we get to share more, you get to see, you know, I look at life in one step at a time. You know, yeah. I think when we, when we look so far, we fail to see what's, what's, what, what's the first step or what the, f- the few things that really have helped me or that can help someone else see the best in themselves. And I think for me, that's what helps me, you know, what can I see today? And that's one step that I can take to be a better person or to encourage someone or to inspire someone rather than always seeing so far, I think when we see so far, we forget of what we can do today and we hold on that. Does it coming from your trauma? And I won't say just coming from your trauma because a lot of people experience trauma, but having overcome or come through a lot of your trauma, does it, well, no, let me just ask you about that. So as you say in the book, everybody has trauma to certain levels and we're not going to minimize anyone's trauma. The trauma doesn't it's either going to kill you or, or it's going to help you. You've got to, I think you say that it's either going to, ref, it's either going to define you or refine you, I think is what you said. Correct. You know, that there's no middle ground. It's, it's either the other way or the other way, you know, and I think um, for me choosing you know, go the right way or go the positive way or to go to a place where it would benefit me the most 
was the best way I could go, you know. And also what I think for me, what I did was I knew my background was ugly. I knew it was hard. I knew all the difficulties that I had to go through, but I had to embrace it first. So I had to make it my own. And then that way gave me the power to feel I can channel it where I want, where I, Peter, decide to channel it in some way. And I think that helped me to first claim what that was, you know, and then so then define how am I going to use this, this ugly of where I come from, this ugly of what affected my life, this ugly that destroyed my entire childhood. How do I claim it, hold it, and use it in some way where I am the beneficiary? You know, uh, I think for me, that helped me uh, to say, no, I'm not going to let my past define my future. No, rather, I'm going to let my past give me a platform and a foundation on how I can excel for my future. You use the words uh, claim it, hold it and, and use it can. And I was thinking as you were talking, is it one to accept it, to say this happened, this happened, it wasn't good. It's not, there's no uh, painting a good story around it. This happened. It was terrible. I'm going to make peace with it is my first thought, but to do that. And you talk about this in your book, especially in relation to your father. Did it, uh, did it cause, is that a result of forgiveness? Does that have to come first before making peace with it? No. Okay. (laughs) You know, um, I think for me, forgiveness came for came came later. You know, really? uh, it was more it was more the climax of all because I knew. Wait, wait a minute. My father said I would never mount anything. Wait a minute. Now I'm doing well in school. My father said I was worthless, but now I have a family that loves me and cares for me without seeing the worst in me. So I had began to see those and I understood them. But forgiveness came later when I said, Oh, oh, now. In order to actually even overcome my own father that I know will always linger in my own brain, I'm going to forgive him, you know? Uh, but I think I had to see the potential in me first before I cannot really move to forgiveness. Because as I really began to do well in life and began to see the best I could do, I was like, wait a minute, there's more about me than what my father said or the society or as a street kid, what people called me. Like, wait a minute, there's potential in me. And once I captured or really began to to take those and, and and do more, the more I began to realize like, oh, okay, now I can do it in school. But my father's anger is still in, the, in me. It's still lingering somewhere and I need to overcome that as well. So I had to realize first, if I can have food and not have to worry about or steal food, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Now I can have food. So a few steps really began to help me now claim my own self, you know? And then I think it's later that I began to realize that I could have, I could have not gone that far, no matter how I wanted, had I not forgiven my dad, like I can do all this, but there's one part that I also have to walk that journey. And that was to forgive my dad. That's interesting. So you're saying to a degree, you're able to embrace this to, as you said, claim it, hold it, use it and find some peace for yourself even before you were able to address forgiveness. And I could say for your dad, but I mean, there were other people that, uh, or you could say just life in general. Why did this happen to me? Why did you end up a street kid and, and even anger at God to that degree is possible. So, but even before some of that, it was just coming to saying, I am okay with me. Absolutely. Because I knew even forgiving my dad, I knew he would, it wasn't something that I was looking for him to say, okay, I'm sorry, son, for what I did. No, I knew it was my 
it, it almost was still my power to say, I'm going to forgive my dad, despite either he responds or he doesn't respond. From my own point of view, I'm going to let it go despite if he accepts it now. So I think for me, that's what helped me because I wasn't looking for a response from him. This was an initiative that I had to do for myself. The same as I took on, hey, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to excel. The same way I did that was the same way I approached my forgiveness towards my father. Like either he takes it or not, but I'm walking that journey on my own for me. One of the holy grail questions of you know self-help, personal development, everything is motivation. Yeah, you just mentioned right. it is mentioned that and that you could have I mean you had a bunch of street you you were you lived with a bunch of other street kids, a bunch of kids that in many ways just like you. And yet here you are, and as you relate in the book, a majority of them uh, died young or you know Correct. disappeared, whatnot. And when you look at that I mean, reading your story, I have no reason that I would say, what happened to you? Why did you get that opportunity? And gosh, I don't, and I don't, we're getting dangerous territory here to say, because the thing is, oh God, you just got blessed. Well, that sucks for the other kids who didn't get blessed. What was it? You know, when you look at that, how do you reconcile what happened to you and that you, that you made it out? I'm not even going to put another word to it, but you made it out. Well, it comes in two different ways, okay. you know. One, I had to work so hard to to even believe that. So, so there's there's a self way of thinking. Well, I had a part to play. He didn't just come and say, "Sure." He fed me for one year and a half. I took the food, and then he offered me to go to school. And he said, "Would you like to go to school?" I said, "No," because I knew, you know, I wasn't worthy. I was a thief. I was. I would never amount to anything. I was garbage. There's no way I could have gone to school. The attraction for me to go to school was food. That's all he said. Yeah. Would you love to go to school? So for me, I was like, okay, yeah. for sure, school. And sometimes, like sometimes, I think we want, we wish the best for people when we haven't really given them the first lens of what to look at. What what is that in front of me? You know, what I'm trying to say. For me, I lived for food. That's all I lived for. I stole for food. I slept for food. I was used for for food. I learned about all sexual because I wanted food. So if someone wanted to give me food and that's what they wanted, that's what I offered. For me, my whole life was about food for that day. But Going to school, that's the offer. He didn't, I didn't hear, oh, you go and be somebody, you go and find a shelter. No, he said, if you go to school, there'd be lunch, dinner, and breakfast. That's all I had, you know. So, and once I got there, then the layers of, oh, wait a minute, beyond food, there's more, there's more. So, that's for me, I think, what really helped me because I had a part to play in getting there. Like it, it took. Loss of my, my thoughts and, and power to truly believe in myself. The other part is guilt. Yes, I still really suffer with guilt as well. When I, when I, on the streets, I saw, I mean, our friends would die and we're the ones to, to bury them and find ways on how we can make them have a rest of their lives. To know that I survived 
I think has compelled me to truly feel like my life should mean something, you know, because there, there has to be a way, there has to be a reason why he would spare me, why God would spare me, or why of all, there were more than 2,000 kids on the streets. Why would I survive? And not just survive, but go beyond even what normal kids have gone through uh, in that I have a mom and dad yeah. that I knew I had a calling. I was spared for a reason. And I think that really helped me to pursue. I never pursued anything that did not have to do with helping the most vulnerable. And I think that has helped me to live because I always know I'm making a difference to someone who needs it just like I needed it as well. It reminds me of you know, the aspect of gratitude, of course, being grateful for what you have and passing it on, paying it forward, which you talk about in the book. It also speaks to me a privilege. Um, and if I look at myself, <clears throat> we talk about this a lot on the show, especially with racial issues that come up that here I am a, you know, six foot tall white American man. <clears throat> I'm at the top of privilege. Um, if I'm grateful for that, would I not feel a responsibility, not out of guilt or anything, but a responsibility to take what I have and bless others with that in a sense that's what you're saying correct yes like i think for me yes it helped me to to know that yes i had to work hard yes i had to to put in more effort than most people do but even at the end of it knowing that it it wasn't just my hard work but i was i was blessed as well like i was fortunate for this stranger i mean he could have befriended another kid he could have befriended my other friend but he stuck with me mm-hmm. you know uh and and for me to know that that there was there was a purpose why why he chose to truly uh give me the best that no no most kids in africa would ever have um uh, and i wanted for me to matter and and i think for me he he taught me legacy you know legacy was he said peter Legacy is when on your funeral day, you know, which was really kind of hard. On your funeral day, this is what legacy is, that people would come and say goodbye to you and say, this man changed my life. This man touched my life. This man showed me how to live. Not this man had so many houses or this man had so many cars. Like that isn't isn't legacy, but legacy is the, the impact you Use your own life to change the lives of those around you. That when you left, they will say, you, you changed my life. And I think that's what I wanted to be because that's what he did for me. He changed my life. And not just me, my entire family, entire family. I'm the oldest of five. My all siblings have gone through university, not because they are smart, not because they could do it. But he set an example. If our older brother can do it. We can do it as well. But also I knew I cannot never take my siblings away from the abuse of my father, but I knew I can give them education that no one would ever take them or take that from them. And so for me, that helped me to even do more for them because it was the best way I can rescue them. I can give them something that my father would not be able to take away. So by changing me, he changed my entire siblings. So it's it's amazing. You know, uh, we're talking about, Legacy, you know, when, when you change a life, you don't change that one life. You change every life after. And when you say, so folks who are, and I wish we could do this show to, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people who had already read the book. So everybody go buy the book. Uh, 
I, it's just going to do yourself justice to, uh, I'm going to get the book and I want my kid and maybe a Christmas gift, honestly, Peter, uh, for my family, for each of my family members to read this book. Cause they're going to resonate with a lot of it that I, as you know, that I dealt with some of that with some of our adopted kids and I want them to hear the story, but it's when you say he, He's talking about, Peter's talking about a guy named James and his family that came to the marketplace uh, where Peter was a street kid and Peter came up to help him, you know, carry his groceries, hoping to get some food or, or whatnot. And a relationship started and this guy gave Peter an opportunity. And from that opportunity, you did what you did. And now you're saying you gave the example, but I, the word that came to mind to me was permission in a sense for your siblings to think, Oh, if Peter can do it, I can do it. And you've changed that. And how many of them are going to have now influenced the other kids, the other families in your small town. And who knows what the ripple effects are from one guy who came to the marketplace for some reason, looked at you and said, huh, wonder if I can give this guy an opportunity. There's no more convicting thought to helping another, whether it's foster, whether it's adopt, whether whatever, but to think of what you do, the legacy it starts. And that's what you're doing today with the kids that you're fostering and adopting. Absolutely. You know, so when it came to the market, you know, as street kids, so we we had a system on how to steal food. You know, one, we always followed people who we thought can afford food. And it was through helping them that would steal the food. It wasn't like I would take too much, just one banana here. You know, at the end of the day, if we all gather enough, at the end of the day, would eat. So for me, I saw him and I wanted to steal from him. So I followed him, you know, but before I could steal him, he said, hey, hey, you know, put my food down. What's your name? And I said, wait a minute, you want to know my name? And, and, and that rattled me. He's why I had lived on the streets for four and a half years. No one human being had ever asked me what my name was. Yeah. So for him to say, what's your name? I was like, wait a minute. You want to know this thief? You want to know this dirty boy? You want to know this no good for nothing boy? Do you want to know this boy that dad told every day, I wish you were never born so I did not have to feed you? You want to know me? You want to know me? You know, so that's really what made me stop. But also that made me scary because for everyone who was kind was also abusive. So him wanting to know my name was a sign of I'm going to run. I'm going to run, you know, and that's really how he got to know me. And that made me nervous. But he came every other week and asked for Peter. And that's really what made life for me better, because as a street kid, who didn't have a name to see a human being come and ask you, Hey, where's Peter? I think for me, that really touched my heart that someone knew my name, like someone, some one human being truly knew my name, which reminded me of my, of my own mom, that someone would take the time to know my name. You know, that that's really touched me more than the food he was giving me that he knew what my name was. And now your book titled, Now I Am Known. Now I Am Known. And is that not the heart's cry of all of humanity to be known? And by the way, don't worry about snapping at your dogs. Uh, I saw you snapping your fingers. So folks, uh, I'll, I'll tell everybody about your Instagram page that tells a story of you, of your adopted son, of the kids that you foster. And some of the characters that play a role in there are your dogs. Simba is one I know. 
Uh, so if they, if they bark, we're going to let it be a part of the show. Uh, okay. so, so you, you, you let them go, you know, Peter going through the book and your stories, you tell a story and then you don't really pull it out. But at the end, you kind of give a lesson. That's how I took it. I literally went through the book and I read the stories and looked at the topic of each chapter. And then you gave a lesson. And just to what you said right there, that you, again, could not have had much of a worse childhood. It's, it would be hard to, other than it would have been just death. Um, and, and to some degree, maybe that would have been easier um, to what you endured. So abuse, beaten, you, know, you slept on a floor, uh, you're made to work, you were not given anything, nothing was really provided. And, um, and, then, and then the psychological aspect of being told. Not only did you not have anything, you were told you were nothing. And that first chapter, you say one of the big aspects of what pulled you out or or I guess gave you possibility was you getting out of there, leaving and and realizing I I know, and you said this in the book, I no longer see myself as useless, worthless, or a burden. And would you say... Because what I saw out of that, and you say, and we'll get to it in a minute because you said something to it later in the book too that I won't give away yet, but you almost, not discounted, but it wasn't just the living conditions. It wasn't that you, it wasn't poverty that made you feel useless and worthless and a burden. It wasn't poverty. It wasn't the hardship. It wasn't the sleeping on a dirt floor. It was a parental figure. And I'm trying, I'm saying this, I'm setting this up because this could happen in somebody who's in a million dollar house. Uh, with every amenity and they were told they were worthless. That's, and now again, and just as you said, and came to tears with a minute ago that you were beaten down and told you were worthless and to have somebody care for you and say, now I'm known that that was a lesson. And you say this, you said, we all have, we have traumas, we have heartaches that have stunted our emotional development and capacity to heal. And we, we carry that just, we tend to carry that injustice throughout our lives, never achieving our full potential. And we settle for surviving. And I mean, you just brought that to that, that happens that can happen in any home anywhere, whether it's the, the, the poverty and the hardship that you grew up in, or if it's Bel Air, that that can happen. Yes. Absolutely. And that's what I've come to learn through false care that I get kids from families that are not that poor, but had have the worst parents or dad or mom, you know, sexual abuse and, and name it all. Um, and, and yes, you, you, you're right. It's, I, I can tell you, I cannot remember the beatings I got, but I can remember every word that was said to me, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 that, and I think as all humans, I think we should watch what our tongues is. It's really is worse than anything else of what we say to others and, and how he, it, it takes away, it robs and destroys lives of what we say, you know, and especially as parents that our kids look up to us or they're looking for survivors to inspire them to be who they can be. And when they hear the worst words, that will always ring in, in our minds in, in, in wherever we go, you know? And that's for me, that was my father. I never had one kind word. You know, as kids, how we work so hard to bring something at home, I'd go fetch water, walk four miles one way, four miles back, and never at one point did I hear my dad say, son, thank you for getting water for us, you know? 
If he was at home, that's what I had. You will never mount anything. You're garbage. You're useless. I wish you were never born so I did not have to feed you or look at you. So think as a four-year-old, you get to hear that every day. I mean, why would I want to see tomorrow? Why? Why would I want to live and, and dream when the one person that should inspire me to dream wants me to die the next hour. Why? And so for me, yes, I didn't dream. I didn't think. I didn't hope. I did not because of the words that I had from my father every day. And that's what stood out to me. It wasn't at all, my gosh, to minimize the horrific conditions that you grew up with just circumstantially or environmentally, but that just what you said right there, the beatings, you don't remember as much and, and those hardships in essence, but you remember the words, and you say in there, chapter one, that the trauma is so much harder because you experienced trauma and abuse in a sense from other people. And you said, if it's from other people, uh, strangers, whatever, it's easier to deal with than from the caregivers that you expect to take care of you. Correct. And that's what you're mm-hmm. seeing every day with your foster kids. Absolutely. You know, that our foster kids get to hear that from school. They get to hear that from they are no parents. And, and sometimes it's unspoken words, you know, when you can't show up for on a visit once or five times, you know, to a child, you're saying you don't matter. You're saying uh, you, 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 you're not you're nothing to me. You know, it, it, it's it's what it's the message we're sending to them to believe about themselves uh, when we don't show up. And that's what our kids in the false care system feel unwanted, unloved, unseen. You know, sometimes they feel their voices are not heard. Think about you move from house to house. Yeah. I've had a child who's been in 12 homes. Think about 12 homes. How belong? How do you feel? Or when will you ever learn what belonging means? Yeah. You continue on and depict living on the streets. You take care of yourself a hundred percent. You hardly ever sleep, but I appreciate that you said, you know, learning, you learn to survive. And I had on the show, it's been a few months now, uh, a psychologist, a therapist, Terry real. He's Gwyneth Paltrow. He's famous for being Gwyneth Paltrow's relationship, you know, therapist, uh, go to, and he was on here and he talked in his book about a lot of stories of people he had that he was counseling and men specifically for some reason that would adopt these aspects in childhood in relation to their environment and circumstances on, on how to survive. And he says, man, what you did there as a kid, that was smart. You learned to survive, but you've taken that into adulthood. And now that survival technique is hurting you, especially in relationships. And you say that in chapter two there, that's kind of the lesson that, and this is what I pulled out that learning to survive has value. I mean, there's things about that, that you continue to talk about that you, you value today, some of your aspects and ability to survive, but you said, and I don't know if you use this word, but I kind of pulled it out. It's not the way to thrive. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. It's not, a way, it's not the way to, because you, survival mode you're only thinking right now you know what can i do right now you know it, it's more than impulse you 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 really have to think of you know, we know where impulses have taken us if you don't think through you regret after the same as survival you you think about what can i do now you know for me if someone said hey uh peter how are you to me that meant survival mode how do how do I protect myself? You yeah. know, rather than, rather than hear kindness, for me was hearing the uh, the opposite of, okay, 
be ready to fight or be ready to run. Someone's about to do something nasty towards you. And, and think about if that was your everyday life. It, it is, it is too much uh, to handle, especially to little ones that yeah. that's your life, you know. You go on and talk about the two months you had with an aunt that you found uh, that you got connected with. And it was a time of, and I'm looking at it and going, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Now you're, you've got somebody who cares about you authentically. You've got some, you know, some amenities. Now it was still in a slums type area. And ultimately you, you left that. But again, kind of that lesson you culminated with is finding, and I think I pulled this right out, but finding goodness and happiness takes a lot of attempts and you live that out. And of course, to pick that in the book so often that you think this good and you write about it, you think, Oh my gosh, this is like the movie you're watching. This good thing happens. You think, Oh, great <sighs> relief. And you kind of experience that. And then you find out, Oh, there's something else that's not good, not sustainable either. And then it went up and down so many reasons again, to give up, which is of course why you give that lesson on that goodness and happiness takes a lot of attempts. And I, I know enough of being involved in foster and adopt that what you're living today, you're seeing that with the kids. And, and I was naive thinking, okay, the kids in a bad way, we're going to put them in a good way and things will be good. Man, it's just, it's over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's over. It's, you almost have to restart your life again. Every time you go to a new place, you know, Uh, to us who, who are okay, you know, you you bring a kid, you think, "Mm, oh, sure. It's, it's a safe home. We don't yell. We don't beat. Well, to a kid who never been in that way, don't know how to handle that, you know? So, you know, to your listeners, even for me, like, the attraction was chaotic. It was a slum area. There were still all kinds of things that I saw on the street that was a little bit easier for me to, to even consider going there. And, 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 and to some of us too, we, we befriend people who are, have the same characters or behaviors of what we're used to. And it's not too late sometimes to walk away. You know, you go in the marriage because you love this guy and you find he's as abusive as your father to say, no, not enough. And that's why for me, what I said, it, you attempt, you, 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 you try and say, I'm going to believe I'm going to have faith in, in what is before me. And then you go in, you know, 10 minutes later, you're like, Hmm, not the right thing. And I would say, I chose not to stay no matter there was a roof over my head, but, but the abuse, the same things I had, I, 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 I did not want to repeat what my father had done for me or what I knew uh, on the streets that I would rather be on the streets and have that freedom than have someone control and still go through the same things. And, and that's, that's most of us who go through trauma. We sometimes tend to attract the people that bring the chaos that we're used to, you know? And I think for me, I created the red eyes to be able to see the antenna of this is, this is not good for me, you know, and I'm not going to stick here. Uh, and that's why I moved away after living with my aunt and, and went back to the streets because I wasn't able to say, oh, no, I can't. I, I've already overcome my father. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to give another aunt or another uncle, you know, just because they have a roof of my head and still face the same or hear or feel. And I, I could not do that. And that's why I walked away. And, and to our listeners now, you know, uh, we feel comfortable. We, you know, we, we, we have friends who are mean to us, say bad things, but we're afraid to let them go. And we stay as friends. They are helping us. And that's what I chose to say. No, I, I will not let another human being define my future. No. 
Well, there's two pieces in that that hit me, Peter, in regards to circumstances, environment, and you just talked about relationships. So the things that we that we know. Okay, so one is that propensity to stick with what we know, even if it's bad. So here you are, you come in, you're you're on the streets, hundred percent dependent on you, a hundred percent as a, as a little kid, you come to somebody who offers a roof over your head, more food than you had. And so, you know, some, and some care and compassion. And yet there were other dangers there that were less secure to you than what you dealt with. And so you go back on the streets, um, and our propensity, just like you said, to want to stick with just the, what we know, even if it's bad, to stick with what we know. And I'm, and I know that you're dealing with that now. We deal with that with foster and adopt kids too, where we think, gosh, this should be better. And yet it's still, if it's not comfortable, if it feels insecure, they'll go back to what seems even worse, but that's a human, there's a human condition that we do that we've got to come to grips with. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, I have a 16 and 18 year old, you know, that they do things and you're like, no, there's no way you can do that (laughs) and realize that. That's the safe place. That is the, the thing they gravitate towards. And you're like, you know, I learned the saying of Napoleon. Napoleon said, it's those that ha- it's those that have the fight not to lose what they have. In other words, if you've tested peace or if you've tested comfort, then you'd fight to keep it. But for kids like us who have gone through trauma, that's not the case. You know, we tend to gravitate towards what actually the chaos we know, yeah. you know, the chaos we know. And most time that's what destroys us, you know, or people who are taking care of, of us do not understand our attitude or our tendency to go towards the places that are unsafe for us. But in our head, we know ah, it's okay. I can deal with that. I've seen that before. I've smelled before. I know how to deal with it. Okay. Well, I know that's what feels dangerous though. It's that, there's that old exactly. cliche term of the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't, but it's still the okay. devil. And I, it, it caused me to question and look at things. Cause if I'm, if, if I look at something new specifically and go back, or I just want to stay where I am, I can confuse that with, Oh, it feels better. It feels more comfortable. Therefore it must be okay. Or it must be right. As opposed to what you're leading us to is no, it may just feel comfortable, but it's bad. It may be even worse, but it feels kind of, and we're so uh, attached to what we know feels more secure than what we don't period. And it's just going to be, but if we can understand that, maybe we can better embrace that thing that we don't know. That's probably going to be better for us, but we've got to understand it's going to be really uncomfortable and feel insecure and unsafe initially. So, yeah. And I think as parents, for especially as parents who are parenting kids from hard places, it's easy to steer them from that without understanding why. Why do they gravitate towards that? And I think if I can understand that first, then I'm less inclined to say, please don't go that route, you know, but may, maybe, maybe be able to journey with them, but be able to steer them along the way than just say, no, you can't go there. Well, but that's, that's the only way I breathe and think. How can you stop me from thinking that way? And in that way, <laughs> we fail to understand why, why does my kid always I'll give you an example. Yeah. You know, I've had I've had a, a teenager. He doesn't know how to uh, 
keep relationship for long, you know? So he thinks if I can call them more, if I can text them more, then they will love me. Well, the problem isn't that they're not loving him. Everyone in his life has left. So he feels for me to keep them, I'm going to work hard to keep that relationship. Well, so at first you'll be like, why do you have to text them all the time? But hey, but if you can, I had to learn, if I can teach him to be secure in his own way and is comfortable to feel that, hey, I need myself than I need anyone else. And people love me, even if they're here or not there, even if I hear them, not hear from them, then he will understand to not suffocate the relationships he gets. You know? yeah. But I had to understand first what causes him to want to work so hard to keep his friends, the fear of being left because he's been left over and over and over. And he doesn't know how to keep even a decent or good relationship. Okay, which is the lesson I came out with in chapter four of your book. And you know, these, these are just my notes. And folks, you got you to get the book. I mean, this would, this would, it needs to be a movie. Um, and yeah, you agree. I, it needs to be a movie. We need to work on it. We're going to work on that, Peter. So you're okay. 15. This is chapter four. And you're 15. And um, uh, James takes you to this, this school and along there, of course, you're just writing this stuff and I'm, and I'm pulling out, these are my notes that you're sleeping on the streets. You, you've never really had a shower or, or a, a proper, what we would think of as a proper bath. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't clean. There's no hygiene's not really a big, it doesn't happen. You had never ridden in a car, 15 years old. You'd never had shoes before. Um, which yeah, there's another story, Peter. I didn't I didn't share that. We we had a uh, um, for a couple of years a group of Ethiopia uh, guys from Ethiopia, elite runners who stayed at our home. So you know you know where I live. Uh, where yes. my house is actually at nine thousand feet. So they'd come up to do high altitude training, and they're sitting around my dinner table and they're just talking. And I I think I asked them because I was looking at getting some new running shoes, and they were talking about. It somehow it came that came out that they were in high school before they ever wore shoes, and I, I just yeah, it blew me away. So here you are, same thing, never worn shoes. You never really had uh, not only not three meals a day, but you were used to having maybe a meal or something to eat and then going days without that. You never slept for eight hours. You didn't, didn't do regular nights, all these things. And then, you know, but you, and you're dealing with this, telling us a story. But then the lesson that you come out with at the end of this chapter was just to what you talked about there is that we tend to find because as James is giving you this stuff, you're not trusting him. And we tend to find what we're looking for in people. And if we're looking for bad, we're we're generally going to find that. And you kept looking for it in him, couldn't find it. If we look for good, we're going to find that. And you said, and this is what you just talked about with your, one of the, one of the kids there, I have to look beyond the behavior and understand the root cause of the poor behavior, the dysfunction, the pathology, the whatever we're talking about. And that that takes effort and time. It's not efficient. It's not simple. It's not easy. And yet you're saying if we're going to, and we can put this into any relationship, uh, that there's root cause. Everybody's had trauma. There's some roots there. And if we just look at the behavior, we're missing them. Is that Fair to say. Yes, absolutely. E- even even our coworkers at work, you know, they do things we are like, that guy is weird, you know. But we never we never really get to stop and say, but why why does he do what he does, you know? Yeah. And, and I think when we get to understand why people do what they do, we it helps us to to step back and say, oh, I see. 
it, it removes you from trying to fix them or it removes you from taking that responsibility that it's not yours. You know, you get to say, oh, I get that. I understand that, you know, and you learn how to relate with them better. You know, you learn how to love them in a different way because you know where they're coming from. And I think, uh, you know, as people, we take less of that when it's uncomfortable and it's not something I'm used to say, no, I don't, I don't want to be your friend, but really, uh, these people, uh, sometimes are the best friends you could have. But if we could take a little time to get to know why they do what, what, what they do. Uh, and that's for me, for me, what it's helped me be, I'm not the best dad I can be, but trying to be the best I can do. But learning my kids, why do they do what they do? Why would my kids steal food, put it under his pillow and not eat it? Like, okay, you've taken the food. Could you at least eat it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Well, but if he's worried about tomorrow, it's about tomorrow. It's not about the moment. Yeah. And for me, I find that really smart. Like, okay, this kid took the food upstairs, hid it under the pillow, so tomorrow he can have something to eat. Yeah. I mean, they're five. That's smart. That's really smart. That I, The first thing I'd say, i say, son, that is awesome that you get to really think beyond that. And you, you keep for tomorrow, you know, rather than say, how dare you bring food upstairs? You're going to bring rats and crotches and who knows what. No. Understanding why they do and for me, even sometimes em- empathi- empathizing with him and say, man, I love that you really think beyond today. Oh. You think about tomorrow. Peter, I wish I had had that perspective the first time it happened to us uh, in our home. Uh, and I wasn't, gosh, I didn't, I wasn't negative towards the kid at, at all. But the first time it just, I was so ignorant, just so ignorant. Um, and the first time that we had kids in our home and you know, fed them and then to find food hidden around the bed, mm-hmm. around their pillow, around whatnot. And with our, our youngest, um, who's been with us for six years, it went on for so long and, and it's, it's, it still happens a little bit every once in a while will still happen. And, and I, man, it's hard not for, for me not to feel frustrated and as right. opposed to, yeah. Right. Kevin, even for me, like I still have trauma that I went through. Here's the difference. I'm quick to know where it is and be able to stop it right away. It's it's not going away. I've just yeah. kind of learned mechanism on how to okay. make it, you know, yeah. uh, close it in, a, in the shortest way. I had a kid who would cry for literally three hours nonstop. I was like, man, how do you do this? You know, but as we walk together, we, we learned how to minimize, you know? So now we are at 10 minutes, but how do we get there? Minimizing, finding ways on, yes, they're going to get upset. Yes. They're going to cry, but how I'm going to minimize this child from going from 30 minutes (laughs) to 20 minutes. And so as a parent, I focus on finding ways on how I can truly help that child stop earlier than later and be able to to master that in in a way uh, and that has made me a better parent yeah. by by understanding that one of the biggest things that your book this is chapter 5 and you're talking about you know at this point you went to the boarding school and all of a sudden you've got everything you've got running water you got hot water you got a bed you got space you've got three meals a day which you couldn't uh, it took you 
you could hardly ever get over, over that, that three meals a day. And as you said, you were the first one there for always asking for weeks and weeks when the next meal is going to be. Um, uh, but you, you left school, you stole, you got in fights, you did these things and you literally pulled this out somewhat. You know, I think you even said, this is a lesson. It's the myth that if we just change someone's circumstances, we will automatically change their life. And you're saying that is a myth because they don't leave their trauma. So Peter, um, this one, again, I just, you're showcasing this and and the book is helping me to process some of these things. A few years ago, we had a single mom from the native American reservation that we've been involved with and, uh, three kids and we got her into church and she has all the support. We got her an apartment. We got her a car with a bow on it. We got her into a house, all the amenities for a new baby that she then just had. And then one night she packed up and left and she was angry at us and said, we put too much pressure on her. We expected too much for her. And I'm, I'm going, are you, are you serious? Okay. So there's my own story of, of realizing, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so ignorant and thinking I'm just going to change the circumstances. It's going to be this fairy tale story. And you're saying that, but then I'm also thinking about it for myself and how often I am trying to, I, and I'm going to say we as a culture, even an affluent culture are trying to change our circumstances, which I love, man. I'm such a fan of that. I just, you know, go after the next thing and change the circumstances and better things. And yet how often do we achieve that thing, whatever it is, and we're not satisfied. We're not happy. We may even be more frustrated. And what you're saying and what you pull out in this lesson is it's a myth because if we haven't dealt with any root trauma healing. Yeah. And I see you're nodding your head. That's huge. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and, and to me, the, the way even living in the United States is where I, I see this is my community, this is my home. So I get to see that, you know, let's give them this. I'm like, wait a minute, you know, giving them doesn't really in some way deal with what what what's the underneath what what's 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 going on i mean he gave me a pair of shoes a- anyone would say man you have a pair of shoes you're happy no i couldn't stand that pair of shoes you know i didn't wear it i didn't want it you know i didn't ask for it you know but it also made me feel that i was being someone i wasn't because I had been used to stepping, no shoes, running, no shoes, nothing. And that made me feel I belong to that society of people who can't afford shoes. So wow. him giving me, me shoes made me feel like, well, I, I, I'm not dreaming to be anything. So wearing shoes, I'm literally pretending to be a life that I'm not, you know? And, and that made me feel uh, less of, a, of who I was and made me feel just not myself because a shoe represented more than just a shoe, yeah. you know, it represented class, hope, future, where you come from. It's, and it's nuts. I mean, so here you, you are, you think you're giving somebody something and it could actually be offensive in a sense, because we don't understand the psychology. And again, how similar are we sometimes when we think that we're going after something that we can't even see ourselves really living within. We can't see ourselves. And you say that it's, it's part of, uh, I think that's chapter six. And you said in essence that you were getting these, you were having these opportunities, you were in these new environments, and yet you still saw yourself through the lens of the past. And that's where you said that line of not letting the past define you, but refine you. But I mean, that's that the heart of all self-help, personal development, whatever is the ability. Can we see ourselves literally 
in a different place than what we've always known. And it's got to be one of the hardest things to achieve. It's like rebrainwashing in essence. Right. You know, I was listening to one of the amazing athletes. Like he's like, I, I went through sexual abuse as a kid. My, my brother went to jail so I worked so hard so I can feel I belong to society. I, I, I became an, an athlete, a good one. You know, I, I earned millions of dollars. But the more I earned, the more I was so empty, the more I was just th- that I thought I was putting layer to be somebody, the more I was empty inside. You know, so for me, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. If we can begin the inside, it's easy for us to embrace the outside. You know, you know, uh, I live in Africa. The way we burn uh, garbage is you you put fire, you put fire under at the bottom, and then you pile and pile garbage on top. So as fire burns, it creates warmth under, and that's how we burn slowly and gently. But with time, it will finish the whole thing. You know, so the the same when we, when we don't deal with with our innermost, you know, it's like that fire. So whatever we put, we're burning. It's not like it, it's helping. No, we're just wow. burning and burning and burning more. Uh, that I think, you know, uh, when we revisit first, when we, we learn how to, the psychology you talked about, re, rewire our mind on how we think, on how we do things. Um, it's the best way that we get to really be mature adults uh, who are not dealing with abuse. You know, most people do, you know, I tell people, I love the parents of my kids, the bio parents. It's easy to judge them, but when you know, when you can learn to understand why they lost the kids, you have more of empathy than judge them. You know, no, no, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you, man, but I, I was just, so, uh, two nights ago, three nights ago, we went to an adoption, uh, support group. Uh, I, I think mm-hmm. that's what they call it, but it's people who foster and, and adopt and whatnot. We went there. Amazing people, amazing people, Peter, but there was a lot of bitterness in the room mm-hmm. and the stories about these kids that they were getting or and they had and the family members of these kids and what they did and you know how they wanted them back even though they were abusing them again and so no what you said is that's 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 a significant mindset to have empathy for these parents that the kids are coming from who are continually abusive to them correct and yet you're able to go there it, it's <laughs> to me. It's the only way I can understand my child. It's the only way I can have empathy for their parents, even when they throw stones against me. To understand, yes, you have five kids. You're one mom. The the husband has left you. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough. The stress that comes just being amongst those five. Well, how do you numb that pain? Well, someone will introduce you to one drug. You say, okay, tonight I'm going to sleep because I have something to help me go to bed. Oh, no worry. Well, the next day you want the same thing. The next day, well, four weeks later, you don't know how to live with that thing that you took to numb the pain of being a mother to five kids. The, the man left with you, you know? So for me to come and say, how dare you not be a good mom? Oh, man, 
<laughs> how arrogant can I be? You know, uh, but how often do we throw the stone to moms and forget, man, she did not wake up in the morning and just say, I'm going to be a mom and a single mom and be on drugs. No, you know, but that's a calm sense of no, no support, no help. The men come and go, you know, that, that's the, the story of what easy for us to come and go and never be held responsible. But we get to cross the mom and the mom who's trying to do the best they can because they're afraid to ask for help. They don't have support. Yeah, they're going to look for something to numb them, you know, and that's something is a drug that I have never tried. I've never taken. So for me to say, well, I wouldn't be addicted if I had kids. That's wrong, you know. But if I can understand that pain they come from, the empathy of me even wanting to connect with them is is different. It's different. Is that going back to where we talked about earlier, your ability to look at your own circumstances, environment, trauma, and to, to, in essence, to, to make peace with it, as you said, to embrace it, to be able to use it is then what enables you right there because you're talking about a master level, a uh, sensei level of empathy. And I was, I, I wrote down patience too of empathy and patience, the amount of empathy and patience that you have for humanity is, um, and I'm not saying this just to pat you on the back, you know, cause it came at a big cost for you. Uh, you, you, You've earned it, but it's it's dramatic. Well, absolutely, but it also came with experience as well. Like I, my the same abuse I got, my mother got the same, oh. and most time my mother got the beatings because she told my my dad that hey, the kids haven't eaten for days. Would you provide a meal for them? And that night she got the beating for them. Or my mom would say, "Could you let my kids go to school so they can learn how to spell their names?" And my mom got the beatings for that. Or she would say, kids have no clothes. They are just in tatters. A mom got the beatings for that. And I knew she loved me. But she could not protect me because for, for every time she stepped up to, to advocate for me, she go. She was the one who got the beatings. So for me to look at another mother and say, how, how, could, you, how could you walk away from your kids? Well, as a street kid, that's what people say to my, to us. They say, why would a mother let their kids be on the streets? But they didn't know my mother, you know. Uh, my mother was abused more than most time I, I was. But the guilt of knowing I'm a 10-year-old who cannot protect my mom, who was trying to advocate for me, the guilt of knowing that, man, I caused my mom to have that. It's a guilt that as a kid, you, you don't know where to put. And sometimes to our kids as well, that they went to school. Yeah, someone found out that they have, you know, been abused in some way. And they report their parents to know like, oh, no, it is me who caused my parents. You know, it's me who caused all this to happen. So tell me, how, you know, it, it, it's more of a complex issue than you can just look at one mother and say, how dare you? No. So what about your dad in that perspective? Where did he come from? What was his upbringing? Was it the same you know, as what you got? 
I don't think so, you know. Really? Uh, I don't think so. Well, he's got other brothers and sisters who were kind, you know. He was the the, the only mean one in in, in some way, and uh, and we, we we don't know. He was born during uh, uh, the World War Two, yeah. and his father was fighting in the World War Two when he was born. So that's why he's called Mutabaz, the one who goes to rescue or to if two people are fighting and you rescue them, you're the Mutabaz. So. You know that's what his name is. Wait, wait, wait. But, that's your. That's what your last name means. Yes. Say it. Say it again. Your last name means. Say it again. The one who intervenes when two people are fighting. Wow. You know, Amutabazi. So in this case, he was called that name because his father was uh, fighting in Second World War Two. Okay. You no. Know? So I, I think he was just naturally. Uh, you know, again, I come from a culture where men are first. Women are second class yeah. and children are third class. And so he had the right to do whatever he wanted to do and no one could stop him, you know. But I, but I feel that in America it's the same way that we, we easily accuse the moms, you know, but we don't, we don't really look at the men, you know. They, they didn't go buy those kids at Walmart. Men were in, involved, you know. But, but we look at the one who was left with the most burden of raising those two, three, four, how many kids, to blame, you know, and and I think for me that I have to have empathy just as much as I had to have love and kindness towards my mother, that she loved me, but there was not much she could do because she was in the same port like I was. Is your dad still alive? Yes, yeah, still alive and still married to my mother. Isn't that crazy? Well, and I know in the story, you know, he he ends up at your university. He's, you know, he does that about face and he's cheering you on, which was... Uh, dramatically hard for you, except too. So here you got a dad who tells you you're nothing. And then he gets to the point of bragging about you. And that was in essence, just as hurtful. Yes. Yes. You know, in, in some way you're like, wait, wait a minute. What? Now I'm somebody to you because I mean something. Huh? You know? Yeah. I think that was difficult, but I, at the same time, I think for me, the the pride of forgiveness, when when you forgive someone and say, yeah, I will let you have a piece of me, you know, <laughs> you know, that Marge and I walked, I didn't walk alone. And if you can have a, the blessing of, of another human being blessing me, sure, you know, I'll let you, you know, go brag about me in some way. Well, so you talk about that and it's, it's pretty, I don't know a better word than convicting, Peter. It was dramatically convicting. So you end up back in Rwanda helping during the genocide that happened there in what, what year was that? Uh, 1994. 94. Okay. So I mean, most people hopefully know about that. So you're back there involved in that and seeing over and over and over these atrocities from hate. And you question, you looked in the mirror at yourself and said, okay, maybe the, you know, the, 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 the outcome is different. The actions are different, but the hate in and of itself. And you looked at it and said, how is that hate any different from the hate you're carrying for your father? And you said, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. It, it, it was kind of that aspect of, we talk about hate or unforgiveness or bitterness is how they say it. What is drinking, drinking poison and hoping that the other person, you know, suffers nice. from it. Is right. that, I mean, that's what you're talking about. What you experienced, yes? Absolutely. You know, I think for me being in Rwanda and seeing on a daily, I mean, I would see more than a thousand dead bodies. And to look at that and think, will I make it back? There's no way. But at the same time, the anger of how could other human beings do this to others? You know, these weren't white and black. These were same tribe 
same people who look the same in the same country. Like, why? Why would you kill kids and moms who didn't do anything to you? And I think for me, that's when I looked at that. I said, hatred. If you hate, it will lead you to do things that you think you're not capable. And that's how I looked at myself because I wanted to harm my dad. Like all my life, I think now I was 19, 20, I said, look, this man caused so much harm to me to my mother and my siblings. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to break his leg or do something physical on him just to show him that, hey, I have the power, but also I can make you pay back, you know? But but in in, in that was my mental thinking, but looking at it, in Rwanda, I was like, hmm, no, before I can point a finger to whoever did this, I need to look at my own self. I am capable of doing this to my own father. And, and, and that's when go, and and that's when I said no, I I can't I can't live this way, and I can't hold this this anger and and, and revenge towards my father. Like no, no, I can't I cannot do this. So come back to what we talked about a minute ago. Is that a primary root issue? As we talked about root issue of you having empathy, or can I say a motivator for your decisive empathy for other people too, is knowing that the opposite of that is bitterness, criticism, judgment, aspects of hate that is just harming you as well as them. Correct. You know, and that's what I realized, like, wait a minute, you know, this man wanted the, this man wished and wanted me to be the worst I could. And actually I'm about to be that man, you know? So in some ways I can, no, I think I'm not going to let you win. Me being that is actually you proving that you're right. You know, that I'm garbage. I'll never mount anything. And I'm stupid in some way. So for me realizing that I was like, Oh, okay. This is how we let people win. You know? And I think even for me, racism, that's how I've kind of learned how to to deal with it. You know, when someone is angry or someone wants to to really treat me in a different way, I try not to be part of that. I say, look, you feel that way. I don't. So I'm not going to get involved or I'm not going to really pay attention because that's your feeling. And that's not my feeling. And I'm going to walk away, you know, and that's really what helped me to deal with my dad that me hating him or wanting to harm him was really fulfilling what he always wanted towards me, you know? So for me, letting go, and actually letting go, I felt like like I had lost 100 pounds in an instant. I was like, man, I feel free, you know? This whole hatred had literally, I feel like it had bundled me, like I couldn't think or stretch my arm. It, it was in everywhere in everything I did. And once I let go, I've never felt free to this day, like letting, letting, letting go of my father. And that's where my father is still married to my mom. And I still had the stories of what he was doing and didn't affect me because I was like, you know, he's my dad. You guys know him. You know who he is. I don't need to hear. Oh, I don't need to participate because we already know who he is. And that was easy to love him of who he was rather than of who I wanted him to be, you know? And that really has helped me, even in friendship, to always love people of who they are rather than of who I want them to be. Uh, and that's been wonderful and and has helped me as a dad of force the kids from hard place, you know, that I want to be a dad of my kids of who they are with their baggage, with their trauma, than 
wanting to be a dad to kids that don't have any of that, yeah. you know, that for me to be the best dad to them, I have to embrace with all their baggage, with all their trauma. And that way I get to truly be, I get to have the honest human being I want to have, you know, that, that line myself that I have a different person. I mean, Peter, you saying that, that in essence, with someone else's, I'm going to use the word injustice, is being unjust like your father. To meet that with hatred, with bitterness, with revenge, with, I mean, you talked about that. You wanted him to suffer. You didn't want him to die. You wanted him to suffer. To meet him there made you him. That, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, right now it's a huge statement. If we look at the media today, if we go click on the top, you know, whether it's CNN or Fox or USA Today right now, it's going to be one side being claimed unjust by another and it's an equal fight. And and you're looking at that going, it's, it's who's unjust. You're both doing the same thing. How are you not? Right. Yeah. Now, you know, my, my mother used this word. He would say, never argue with a fool because people might not notice. They might not differentiate who's the fool. I was uh, like, yeah. what, does, what does that mean? You know, if a fool is arguing and you're also arguing, you're both fools. But if you don't, then we're able to know who's the fool. And that really helped me to know that, ah, oh, okay, you know, uh, you take part in what others are doing. You're, you're equally like them. Yeah. There's some relational aspects to this discussion and what you talked about in your book. And I'm going to save it for our part two. Uh, I, it's, it's, uh, I want to go deeper into that. Your story again, Peter. Well, you know what folks first, we're going to end right here. Go get the book. I mean, you know, I'm shameless in promoting people's book, but go get this book. It's more than a, um, than a memoir. It's a, to me, it was a contemplative look at, and I'm not going to say at the culture. It was looking at my own culture, Peter. It was a contemplative look at you experience atrocities that I can't say that I experienced, but they were exaggerated traumas to the traumas we all have. And you walking through your effort to not fall to those things, to not be overcome, to not, to not embrace the dysfunction that came along with them. You didn't have food. So when you did have food, you stole it because you didn't trust it. That's a dysfunction that didn't make circumstantial sense, but it did make emotional traumatic sense. And so for us to look at that, I thought we can, we could all relate to it to mm. some aspect. And it was, um, it was profound. I'm going to be chewing on it a while. I'm going to share the book with people and I'm going to be on here telling people to go get the book and let your experience benefit them because, well, that's why you're here. It was so profound. And thank you for what you've done to bring this book to us, what you're doing to invest legacy into those kids. Uh, it's an honor to sit with you. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Well, friends, I really hope you were, I actually, I trust you were as wowed and touched by Peter's story and his hope as I have been, as I am. Uh, here's the extra big call out I have for Peter for, for helping him and what he's doing, supporting him. You can find and get his book. Now I am known again, anywhere. Uh, you can check him out for speaking opportunities for your organization at now I am known foundation.org. And he can look at supporting his efforts to be a full-time dad to more and more foster and adopted kids. Again, it's now I am known foundation.org. 
A-R-G. Thank you again for choosing to tune in to this ever-growing self-helpful podcast. If you got value, it'd be great if you subscribe. Leave us a review. Tell us what you thought about the show, about this episode. The best thing you can do, just talk about what you heard here. Ponder it. Grapple with it with someone else. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others. <laughs>